Brasil coloca na roda o time americano, 3 para o Brasil, 0 para os Estados Unidos, a And welcome to episode number 29 of the Sportscasters. It is July 5th, 2011. My name is Steve Bennett. One day after the country celebrated its independence. Don, did you have a, a good 4th of July? Yeah, not bad at all. Very busy. That's my co-host, Don Russ. Of course, my name is Steve Bennett. We got a great show lined up for you today. AJ Delirio from Deadspin.com. An interview we've been chasing, I would say, about from the start. Uh, finally hooked up with AJ last week, and he is going to be on the show in a little bit. Also, later in the show, we have an interview with Mike Harrington, one of the best columnists Buffalo has to offer. He writes for the Buffalo News, and Don, you know why he's been on our radar for a long time? That's because our buddy Rich Deitch loves him so much. Yeah. Richard Deitch just loves this guy. Always high praise. Always talks about him, so he'll be on the show a little bit later. All right, let's do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Alright, special edition of three things today. A little bit of a backstory. A couple weeks ago when we had... Tim Graham on, I decided I would find a Buffalo Bills message board, let them know that Tim Graham was on and that we talked about the Bills on the show. As it often is when I report about the sportscasters on message boards, uh, it was accepted with kind of mixed feelings. Some people think you're spamming. They don't want you to bother them. They don't think there's enough Bills on the podcast for it to be relevant. And then other people are nice. And one of the nice people was a guy who goes by Spiked Lemonade on buffalorange.com. I'll give them a plug. Buffalorange.com was the website. And uh, he's going to go by Spike here on the Sportscasters, and he's going to join us for three things. How are you doing today, Spike? Good. How are you guys doing? All right. Great. First question for you before we get to three things. What was your reaction when you first read the thread that I started on buffalorange.com? Well, you saw my, my reply. I'm a pretty positive about it, buddy. I mean, you're, you're just... You know, you want to talk sports. How can anything be wrong with talking sports? I think what you found was some of the individuals who um, were not uh, reaching you or not accepting you uh, had other issues that week. Uh, you know, they were a little perturbed by the new uniforms for the Buffalo Bills. <laughs> uh, they, uh, they wanted a certain blue with a certain color. And, of course, my comment was they can wear potato sacks. I don't care. Just win. Just play. How about they just get on the field first? Yeah, well, you could, I'm telling you, some of these guys... Uh, you know, it's uh, need to be tested. Harmonial ba- uh, balance is what they are because it's uh, they're just all shook up about how this, how it's going to look, how the uniform's going to look, as if it's going to make a difference. <laughs> all right. Well, it is three things. The way we do it is we basically it's a springboard to talk about three to six to this week nine different areas of sports. So Don's going to kick us off with his first thing. 
All right, my first thing this week is uh, I my team is finally cheating with the rest of the league, and I couldn't be happier. Uh, the Sabres signed Christian Ehrhoff to a very fishy-smelling contract. Mm-hmm. I, I Lots love, of years. I love that they're involved in this type of thing. I don't think it bodes overly well for the league as a whole, but uh, if other teams are going to do it, it was started with guys like Pronger, guys like Kovalchuk that they had to write countless number of contracts before they finally got it right and the sabers are going to do it with uh with uh airhoff and i'm i'm glad that we're players in the league finally yeah and that's something we'll talk about with mike harrington later it's just about how awesome it is to be buyers and not have to wait for july 1st for your team to get just gutted by the rest of the league and one thing I'll say about that contract, you know, is it's going to make for a pretty awesome trivia question next year. When someone asks you to name the top five, top highest five paid highest players. Five played players in the league, because Christian Erhoff is going to be about number three with his $10 million, the $10 million that he's going to make next year. And um, the contract is obviously going to get cheaper as it goes along. It's front-loaded. It's a 10-year deal. And uh, I'm with Don. I'm very excited. Spike, what, what NHL fan or team are you a fan of? Boston Bruins since 1968. I'm a bandwagoner. Just got on board. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you feel about what the Bruins have done in free agency, losing Michael Ryder and Caberlet as well? Yes. I yeah. would have drove Michael Ryder to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael Ryder, um, I follow uh, in, another message board for, for the Bruins. And uh, Michael Ryder has been seen, for the most part, as a floater by most Bruin fans. Uh, he, he's ups and downs. He's, there's years he scores 20 goals, and other years he disappears in huge stretches. He had a great playoffs. Um, there was no chance the Bruins were going to make an offer at all this year. So it wasn't an issue of whether paying him $4 million or less. It was fundamentally just basically uh, letting him go. And so I have absolutely no problem with Michael Ryder leaving. You may notice we picked up a... A cheap guy uh, from Montreal Canadiens, uh, Beno, I can't even pronounce Pou- his name. Poulier or something like that? He's fr- yeah, he's a French guy. I mean, uh, and that doesn't go over well with Boston fans either. They <laughs> say, like, when Michael Ryder leaves, we need a, we need a stench of another Hab. A fan. Um, so there's, there's uh, people are not receptive, but, uh, you know, he's only going to cost us $1.1 million on a one-year contract. He's drafted fifth overall. Big kid, can skate. Um, you know, either he does well this year or he doesn't. But, I mean, that's that was our only foray into free agency. Um, we didn't have to worry about free agency because uh, we had a great uh, NF- NHL draft. Now, we had made predictions, and as it was, it sounds like it doesn't matter because Brad Richards seemed like he knew where he was going to begin with. But my prediction was kind of uh, – was that I thought Boston might make a big run at him. They had a little bit of cap room. They have something of a need at center with uh, Savard's injury history and future in somewhat of question. Are you surprised they didn't make a run? I mean, like I said, not that it would have mattered. It looks like he had his bags packed ready to go to the Rangers anyway. No, none at all. Uh, There's no talk about Brad Richards. (laughs) Very little talk. The Bruins are very deep in center. Um, Savard, I do not expect to play hockey again in the NHL, so he's gone. Um, And so we're at $16 under the cap, without even counting that. We're a very well-positioned uh, team right. right now for a team that won the Stanley Cup. Brad Richards doesn't fit. Um, a lot of people don't think Kretschik is a number one center in the NHL, and you have to understand the Bruins system. There will never be a goal scorer who scores 35 goals in Boston. It's very, very unlikely. Uh, maybe Seguin, but uh, it's a system that is uh, very responsible for defensive um, responsibility. So 
It's not going to happen. The second uh, uh, centerman is uh, Bergeron. Uh, nothing wrong with him. No, right. Your third one you got is um, third line. Either you Seguin. We've got Campbell. We've got Parley. We've got a lot of centers. We're deep, 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 deep in centers. So uh, Brad Richards didn't really fit. I don't think Brad Richards – I guess he is a center. I just – Brad Richards doesn't fit. No one's going to do that. The only talk in Boston about getting anyone would be a – top pairing or top four defensemen who would be mobile. Caberlet's deciding. I didn't follow the news today, so I don't know if Caberlet yeah, signed Yeah, he signed. Elsewhere. He signed with Carolina. Good for them, then. I mean, the, the Caberlet, that deal was, uh, I live in Leaf country, so, um, you know, they got a little bit back from the Kessel deal where we basically, you know, stole their lunch. But they, uh, Caberlet just did not fit in the Boston system. Um, he's, I don't believe his talents are, have dropped as quickly as he showed. Um, but he was not making that crisp pass. Um, he, we knew he was weak in his own zone. He wasn't going to be able to be uh, a shutdown defenseman. Um, and we knew he wasn't going to shoot the puck on the power player elsewhere. I mean, it's sad to see that guy skate around half the team in the other zone and then not shoot the puck. But he just didn't fit in. And the talk was that if he went for three and a quarter million, we might have signed him. And uh, I don't yeah, know what he, he did. He got a little bit more Carolina. than that. It was a four-year deal, I believe. <laughs> It went for four million plus. Four million plus. Might have been yeah. three years. I wish them. I wish them the best. That's not a. Uh, that's a not a four million dollar player, and it's not also a player you would want to sign for four years. So uh, no big deal. But now we need maybe a puck moving defenseman. Uh, we uh, got lucky. Dougie Hamilton. Uh, some people thought was the best defenseman in the. Uh, yeah. NHL draft, other than Larson, dropped to us at. Um, Ninth uh, from the Leaf pick, uh, and I can tell you, I'm doing the Dougie dance still. That was uh, <laughs> that was uh, huge for us. And uh, the Russian kid that we picked up in the second round is the youngest player to be drafted this year. Um, played as a rookie for Windsor, and uh, you will hear their names along and and Spooner, who plays for the Kingston um, Rangers, Frontenacs, uh, Frontenacs. Oh. and uh, and then you've got also uh, we got uh, Knight, uh, Jared Knight, who happens to play for the London Knights. These are guys that we drafted in the first two rounds the year before. Uh, we've got a lot of talent coming online. We're a younger, a younger team, a faster team, uh, a team that score goals. And people laugh at me, but they don't appreciate this is the beginning of a dynasty. And you can't get a dynasty per se in the NHL these days, meaning a number in a row. But I'm saying we're going to get three Stanley Cups in five years. Bold. Wow. Yeah. All right. My first thing, uh, the, NA, the NFL – has been working the last couple days, uh, well, today and tomorrow. And what they're doing, which they haven't done yet, is they're finally putting together something that the sides can vote on. And uh, the word on ESPN.com today is that the NFL and the NFL players resume talks Tuesdays. They're in New York. And the first two days are designated for work done by both sides and the lawyers to draw up the language for what could be a potential agreement. Definitely a good sign. Thursday and Friday, the way it's going to work is that Roger Goodell and DeMarie Smith will participate in talks then, and uh, maybe there'll be something to present to both sides for a vote. So this thing is going on too long. Training camps are ready to start at the end of the month. There's supposed to be a game on August 7th between the Bears and the Rams to celebrate the Hall of Fame, as we do every year, and to be sad to have a Hall of Fame induction without a Hall, Hall of Fame, Fame game. game. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully this week is is the week that the this nightmare ends. All right, uh, Spike, kick us, give us your first thing of the week. Well, I thought he was going to steal what I was going to ask. Um, <laughs> it's uh, 
The first one I had was the NFL New Agreement. Um, a lot of uh, people <clears throat> kind of fall on two sides of these issues without the particulars of what this deal looks like now because I really haven't been following the past couple days. But generally speaking, people fall on the player side or they fall on the owner side. And you get your maybe your business types that fall on the owner side because they appreciate what, um, what it is to have employees and all the other costs of running a business. Then you have other people saying, well, the players are really the whole show. Uh, the players are fundamentally uh, like a movie actor. So when, I don't know, throw a name out there, uh, Jim Carrey uh, does a movie, he gets $25 million or whatever per year. So he's the whole show. He's the reason people go, is the, is the old argument. So I guess what I was wondering what you guys thought about in terms with that sort of thinking, uh, who should get the bigger percentage of the revenue? I mean, the way they're doing it now, they... My understanding is before they had a $1 billion coming off the top of the revenue before the rest was shared. And forget about all that and forget about the special deductions that the players are, or the sorry owners are going to get for uh, new buildings, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what do you think about the percentage? Should the players get 51% or even 50.5% and the owners take a less share? Like who, 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 who runs his show or where do you think it should fall? You know what, Spike? I've always been the kind of guy who goes with the movie analogy. And I think that the players give a lot to to have us entertained every week. It's an absolutely brutal and vicious game. And every year it's only getting more and more brutal and vicious when, as the physics of the game get nastier and nastier. And every time I see a real sports about Earl Campbell not being able to walk, I kind of cringe and think, you know, this guy deserved more. And I think that the players that play now... You know, I think there's a bit of a misconception. Sure, there's guys like Peyton Manning and Drew Brees and Tom Brady who are going to make a ton of money being football players. But then there's also guys like a friend of mine, Keith Ellison, who's only making four or $500,000 a year. And I don't want to say only like it's something to shake a stick at, but he's only got about a four or five-year window of that kind of earning power. Right. And then that goes away and he needs to find a plan B, which... It's tough for a lot of players. So I've always been the kind of guy that I hope that the players can make as much money as they can make while they're playing because I know the window is limited and I appreciate how much they sacrifice and give to entertain us on a weekly basis. That's my opinion. Yeah, I would, I would say the same. I think the most recent proposal that uh, was kind of leaked or whatever was reported was 52% for the owners, 48% for the players. And that's closer, at least, to being right. Um, a lot of the problem is a lot of the money goes to people it shouldn't go to, and we always bring them up, but Jamarcus Russell is a good example of someone that got $50 million to really do nothing. Now, if that money could be better spread somehow throughout the league, like Steve made the point on the last podcast, that that's fine if you want to make those contracts go away, but I don't want that $50 million just to go into the owner's pockets then. Put it into the veteran players or put it into the retired players, and then I'm okay with that. But I, I think about 50-50 is right. I mean, the owners do take the risk, I guess, by spending their own money, if you can call it that. Like every NFL team, just by opening their doors, makes money. So it, it should be minimally around 50-50. Yeah, you know, Spike, I think that if we can get to a point where, like they say, 52-48 or if it's going to be 46% or whatever, okay, but let's, like Don said, let's spend that money smarter. Let's get a rookie salary cap in here and let's spread that money around and make sure the veterans are, are paid better than they are. What do you think, Spike? Yeah, I'm the same way. With um, I mean, the the way your numbers are going, are you basically have the owners with a little bigger percentage, and I think that should be fundamental. Uh, it did. It wasn't that way in the previous uh, agreement. I think the owners 
for all their complaints, that's what really burned them. That plus the fact that they know that this $9 billion business is projected in 16 years to be $25 billion. So they, they want to get that percentage under control. As to the, own, uh, the salary cap for rookies, uh, absolutely. And know that money uh, that's saved uh, shouldn't go to the owner's pocket or leave any percentage of it. Most of it should go to, uh, most of it, quite frankly, should go to retired uh, veterans uh, who didn't get these kind of contracts in those days. And they're the ones suffering. And, and, uh, and have, you, have you seen the news? Uh, yeah, they're looking for a bigger say now in yep. the negotiations, and they should. So I'm, I'm supportive of that, of that, and I'm also supportive of a salary cap for rookies that is significant. What I mean by that is um, I think the total first rounds, and I don't know what that figure is. I thought it was about $1.5 billion that is spent Jeez. on first-round picks. I think that number needs to be dropped down to about 25%. That, needs to be, that number needs to be like, I don't know, th- whatever that was, $375 million. It needs to be severely limited, not just in half, but more than half because uh, it's insulting for – a new rookie to come in and have getting paid one of the top players in the league when he's done nothing in the NFL and I think it causes locker room issues I think the veterans uh, don't like it they uh, some of it's hazing they do and it's good natured but the reality is uh, it's just wrong and there's no other industry in the world where you come in and you're the highest paid player without doing anything yet so I I think that's got to be severe cut and it needs to be um, well thought out so that there are not ways around it because uh, the agents want their 10 points and they're going to find a way. So you've got to really think it through. And I, I, I agree. That's where it's got to happen. It's very significant. Okay, my second thing for this week. Speaking of lockouts, uh, the NBA has become the second of the four big four, quote-unquote, sports to be locked out. I'm not going to get into the details of all of it, but 22 of 30 teams reportedly lost money last year. So... This was coming from a mile away, and our friends at SB Nation, uh, if you click on their NBA section, they do a good, their author, uh, Tom Ziller, does a good job of documenting all the similarities and differences between the NBA and NFL lockouts, so check that out. But yeah, it's, uh, this is uh, 2011 sports, apparently. This is going to be an ugly one. These guys are going to, the owners are not going to accept anything less than what they think they need to turn a profit across the league. Uh, they have a really soft salary cap right now. I think they're going to push very hard for a hard salary cap. And I think that the NBA has a much higher probability of missing a season than the NFL does. And I would almost be surprised if it was resolved without missing at least a significant portion of games, if not the whole season. All right, my second thing. Uh, you've probably never heard of this guy. That's okay. His name is Josh Kroger, and he is a first baseman for the New Orleans Zephyrs, the AAA affiliate of the Florida Marlins. And last night, he went all Bill Grammatica on us. The Zephyrs pulled off a come-behind win in the ninth inning over the Omaha Storm Chasers. Storm Chasers is their name. And it was a two-out ninth-inning double by a guy named Joe Thurston. Unfortunately, if you're watching the video, which is on sportsgrid.com, our friends at SportsGrid, Joe Krieger tries to jump onto the celebration and totally whiffs on the pile and basically just wrecks his knee. (laughs) I mean, it is ugly. He blows his knee out three different ways. It's about as ugly of an injury I've seen in a long time. And, of course, when something like this happens, we always think back to Bill Gramatica. Now, I have a question for you, Spike. Spike. Yeah. As you recall the Bill Grammatica injury, 
What were the circumstances in the game when he kicked that field goal? What what comes to your mind? What do you recall? What was the game? What was it a winning kick? Was it, was it at the end of the half? What, just what do you recall? I don't believe it was a winning kick. It wasn't I mean, a winning I, kick. I remember the event, but I don't believe it was, it was a winning kick. No, it was not a winning kick. It was not a kick at the end of the half. No, I was way off. It was a kick with seven minutes left in the first quarter to <laughs> give the Cardinals a three to nothing lead over the Giants. <laughs> <laughs> so that is Bill Grammatica and his foolishness, and welcome to the club, Mr. Krieger. We're just talking about celebrations uh, in uh, sports, um, and I guess my next one was the rioting um, in sports, <laughs> in professional sports. Uh, the example recently was uh, Vancouver Canucks lost, and uh, when they lost... They went apeshit. Um, let me put this somewhere else. When they lost, there was rioting uh, in Vancouver, uh, normally a very peaceful city. Yeah. And uh, of course they lost and they rioted, and that's very unusual. Uh, the parallel is the Bruins. The Bruins won, and uh, there was no rioting. Well, that, um, that would make sense, I would think. You'd have happy fans. But you've got other instances as well. Uh, Montreal is a city that is known for its hockey riots. Uh, the first yeah. one being, well, one of the first ones being 1955. <clears throat> When uh, Maurice Rich, uh, Rocket Richard, uh, he was uh, suspended by Clarence Campbell of the NHL, and then the uh, the fans took to the streets and caused the, probably the biggest riot. But Montreal had a riot in 1993 when they won the last when they last won the Stanley Cup. You Google and you'll find that they had riots in 2008, 2010, and 2011. So I guess I'm wondering, what is it with rioting after a professional sports event? Well, what I want to know is what's with all the rioting in Canada? Like you said, it's usually a very peaceful, calm nation. And if, correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't there some rioting in Toronto last year, uh, kind of in and around the time of the big political thing that was there last year? I'm filling the blanks. Yeah, the G8 the and the G20. Right. Now, but, those, but those you can understand because those are um, people come who want to protest, and they're coming from other countries to protest with agenda. It could be anarchists or environmentalists or whatever, and they need to be heard, and because there's so many groups who have so many different items, agendas that they're trying to, prepare, to bring forward, they're, they're rioting because it takes one idiot to do something, and away you go. But you find a lot of rioting in, in hockey. Right, guys with Toronto Linden jerseys on. <laughs> what, but I think Philadelphia's had issues in the past, um, and, and I'm, I'm just trying to recall, but I, I guess I'm just wondering what's the... Uh, and of course, you had hooligans. Of course, in, in yeah. uh, soccer, with, yeah, right. So, it, it just it doesn't seem to fit in um, what is happening in the arena, yeah, arena, stadium, whatever. There's, I would have thought there'd be a disconnect. The game's over. Uh, you're you're unhappy. Uh, you go home. And you might kick your dog or whatever. But the reality, like, you know, what is what is the writing and why is it immediate and. Uh, I don't know. I wonder if you guys have thoughts about that. I find it the strangest when a team will ride after a win. I've never been right. so excited that I wanted to flip over a van or burn down a store or start looting. Or I mean, I just I don't understand that way of celebrating. I guess I imagine alcohol has a lot to do with it. Yeah, and you oh, know, no I think rioting is basically trending away from the winners towards the losers. As he said, there was no riot in Boston this right, time. Right, right. Uh, when the Saints won the Super Bowl, there was actually like even a four or five day loss of homicide in a city with many homicides since Katrina. Uh, so even the, the the murderers took a break. 
but I think I just it just seemed like no matter it just seemed like that Vancouver thing you could see it coming and it happened in 94 after the loss in game 7 there as well and it just feels like I don't know people wanted to be videotaped throwing rocks at the police and yeah, breaking windows it, and we talked about it a little last week and it's just it's very very strange to us as huge huge sports fans willing enough to sacrifice our time and effort and money to put on this podcast but i'd never considered a riot no not at all my well, in vancouver is one of the more peaceful places yeah that's what i heard very well, strange being sort of the best marijuana in north america right, right. and uh, you would think they'd be mellow that's right my third thing this week we're talking about rioting and lockouts and uh controversy in general well there's controversy in the world of competitive eating mm-hmm. joey chestnut uh is the champion again having eaten 62 hot dogs gross right <laughs> meanwhile down the street somewhere or i don't know exactly how close he was but kobayashi mm-hmm. supposedly reportedly uh via video conference of some sort ate 69 hot dogs in the same span which would set a record he was in a mm. at a bar on a, on, a, on the roof of a bar on two hundred or called two hundred thirty fifth, and uh, he's not in the event because for the second straight season he's been locked out because of a contract dispute. Uh, but mm. he claims to have played under the same rules. But as everybody knows, it'd be different conditions. There were no judges and whatever. So contract disputes even hitting the world of competitive eating. Yeah, you know. Kobayashi can go away as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> he got dragged away from this event a few years ago by the police, ended up in jail. He's always uh, doing something wrong. And I wonder if it's somewhat staged in the sense that to try to give competitive eating a name, the characters within it have kind of... Turned heel? Become, yeah, <laughs> turned heel or become characters of themselves in a way. Right. And uh, Joey Chestnuts is a good American boy, very lovable and I'm proud of him for eating all those hot dogs <laughs> on our, our Independence Day. And, you know, nothing says celebrating the 4th of July like a guy eating a lot of hot dogs. Spike, well, on I, July 1st. I, actually, I did some research into this yesterday, yeah. it turns out. Okay. Um, and uh, so two things. One, I would say that what you're looking at is sort of a, a wrestling analogy here. Yeah. Uh, where the characters have to be significant. And you're looking at a breakdown here in the, in the different associations like WWF and all the rest. Sounds like that's... Where that's going, but I looked into a little bit about the um, about this uh, about hot dog eating, and I looked into the history of Nathan's. Um, Nathan's has done an unbelievable job of marketing this, and uh, I guess if you if you wanted to take it at a sort of a superficial level, you'd say Nathan's doing a wonderful job of selling their hot dogs. Um, people tell you that they taste so bad that the only way you want to have them is to go that eat them that fast. <laughs> but uh, I'm not a hot dog connoisseur; I won't eat them. Uh, but I think what the other part of it in the lower levels is, a deeper level is, um, it really points to the gluttony. Um, I'm going to make it North America so I don't offend you, the Americans <laughs> there. But, uh, it points to the gluttony of North America that on the day of your celebration of independence, it is marked with what can only describe as an outrageous overeating. Right. And uh, of something which is uh, fundamentally made of nitrates. So, I don't know, but I suspect that most of the world is not laughing with you. <laughs> well, you know, I was once in an eating contest. True, true story here. 
uh, Rush, the c- Canadian rock band Rush, was in town at the HSBC Arena, and one Not of many times. Yeah, so so have I. I've seen them about seven or eight times now, and yeah. they were giving out front row tickets. At a, there was a promotion. The radio station set up at a donut shop, and they gave people an hour to show up to be in an eating contest uh, for, for the rush tickets. So I went down, and it ended up me being me and a fat chick. That was it? Only people who showed up. <laughs> so it was me and some fat chick, and uh, I only ate one donut. In the amount of time I couldn't get it down It was like a, a powdered donut They oh, didn't give man. us anything to drink <laughs> I couldn't get it down And she ate, I don't know, maybe three and beat me You know who would be really good at that is Canadian police <laughs> American <laughs> police wouldn't donuts. be that bad either They love their donuts Alright Spike, you're up Yeah, um, my last one is, um, is about the importance Of ownership In professional sports Recently uh, Mark uh, Cuban um, uh, basically succeeded in willing his team. Uh, he's owned that team for a number of years, um, always willing to spend money, um, whatever it takes, on coaching. Um, he doesn't care if he gets a luxury tax. He's willing to pay it. Um, when it goes heads up with the uh, league quite often, criticizing the referees. But there's a guy who clearly wants to win, uh, win whether you like him or not. Oh, we love Cuban. Can't Q. argue with him. Huh? So we love Cuban. Yeah, we're big fans yeah. of Cuban. So you can't argue. So that's one example. Then you look at the Boston Bruins as another example. Under uh, Jacobs Sr., Jeremy Jacobs, uh, who's from Western New York, uh, the Bruins struggled for many years. Um, they had uh, Harry Sinden as their president. They you know, wouldn't spend money. Players would leave uh, when they reached their prime. Um, then they'd hire coach. Like the, you know, there was a reason that we didn't win the Cup since, since 72 till this year. His son comes in, uh, Jacobs uh, Jr., Yep. and in a mere three or four years, he's got them on the right track, and, and, I, and I'm saying dynasty. So the final example, and I, I believe you guys talked about this last week, is, is talking about the contrast between uh, Al Davis and, uh, and Ralph Wilson, and, and I didn't bring it up because that's a Buffalo Bill issue. Yeah. Um, I've got a, a thread going now uh, well, on that site you mentioned. Yep, BuffaloRange.com. Right, where I, I basically um, contrast the two. And because uh, and <clears throat> Buffalo Bill fans will typically say the worst owner in the NFL is Al Davis. And I say to them, it's not even close. It's Ralph Wilson. And uh, you, you go with Super Bowls, uh, first category. Al's got three, Ralph zero. Uh, you go to issues of uh, when they were, went, got into the Hall of Fame. Uh, 1992 for Al. For Al. Al and Ralph only got in 2008 nine, or 2009. Nine. Right? Yep. Um, you go and look at uh, football backgrounds other than owning. Um, you've got Al, who basically was an O-line coach in colleges, uh, worked his way to coaching in the NFL level, uh, and is truly, truly a general manager. You may argue he's not a good general manager of Oakland right now, but he knows his football. Ralph's background, zero. <laughs> and then you go to the final issue, <clears throat> which for a lot of Buffalo, Pil- Buffalo Bills fans is the issue of ownership and succession. And what you have is you have Al is in a partnership. He owns, well, he did own two-thirds of the team, sold a 10% stake a couple of years ago for about $150 million, and his son is already being involved, um, but it's a partnership, and there's no talk uh, in Oakland about what happens when Al dies. Well, and we're not that way. In Buffalo, we have an owner who bought a team 50 years ago, 51 years ago, for $25,000. 
with no football background. It is now worth up and down anywhere between, depends whose number you take, Forbes numbers, whatever, 900 million to, to a billion. Right. He doesn't own the stadium. It, he's, it's provided to him by the county, subsidized. He didn't put any money into that. Uh, he has no debt related to it. Uh, we don't know what happens when Ralph dies. Uh, Ralph has said in an interview in 2007 in the summer that uh, when he dies, it'll go to his estate, and his estate will sell it, and it'll be an auction. It doesn't necessarily have to go to the highest bidder, uh, but Ralph can't control that from the grave. He has said that his family will not be involved. Uh, he could have sold a percentage of that previously. Al did it. Al sold a percentage. Uh, Ralph is just keeping Buffalo Bills fans hostage. So every time there's a rumor of L.A. and they need a team, by the way, that's going to be a new franchise team. There's no way the NFL owners are going to give away that franchise fee. They want to split that one. That's not a relocation situation. But uh, we don't know. So I sit there and go, let's say Ralph dies. He's 93 in October. God, you know, God, God, God rest his soul. He's going to die at some point. Right. Yeah, I think that's given, you know. And so... When that happens, you've got um, a couple things that are going to happen. And I think people don't like to talk about this on the Buffalo Bills site. They want to presume Ralph's going to live forever. Um, nope. That sounds like a disco song, doesn't it? Anyway, so um, what, uh, what's going to happen is, is the state's going to sell it. And I believe um, the, NF- the only way that team stays there for a period of time is that the NFL steps in and says, this is not good for the NFL shield. To allow this team to relocate, we're going to, uh, because remember, the NFL owners are the ones who have to prove any relocation by majority vote, or I think it's super majority vote. So what they'll do is they could step in and say, look, the next owner has to come in and at least keep the team there for five years, at the very least. And that's the only hope. Um, but then again, this is back to leadership. I have one more uh, hope for you. What's that? Terry Pagula. Yeah, well, you know, he's very he's rich. money. Yeah, he's very rich. Yeah, he's very rich. He's rich enough to own an NFL team and an NHL team for sure. Uh, he seems to do it, at least with his NHL team, he seems to do it more as a fan than as a businessman. He's not afraid to spend money. I don't think he's that concerned. He, he did say when he bought the Sabres that if he wanted to make money, he'd drill an oil well. Um, so he's a potential savior for the Bills, and it'd be, it'd be nice if Ralph set up a, a plan. I'm not a big Bills fan. I'm not a fan at all, but I am a fan of Buffalo being, the Bills having an NFL team. I'm a fan mm-hmm. of Buffalo. It makes us a more legitimate city. And I do worry, like Spike, like you do, that the lack of a plan will result in the team not being here in the long term, even more so than worries about the CBA or anything like that. I think it, you know, if it does go to auction, it's almost like, well, anything could happen. Right. Well, again, the NF, it's just like you remember when uh, um, the Basil tried to buy the uh, uh, buy the Phoenix Same. team and, right. uh, in hockey and bring it up here. And that wasn't enough to do it. You still had to get the NHL owner's approval, and, and Bettman stopped it. So the NFL can at least slow down the process or say it has to be local. But there's talk by fans who have a lot of hope in, in Buffalo that Ralph uh, must have a succession plan. There's no way Ralph would leave us without a succession plan. If Ralph had a succession plan which involved him keeping the team after his death, do you don't think that Ralph Wilson would announce it now and be carried on his shoulders and, uh, and by the loyalty? Hmm. Like, he has no plan, and his plan is to die. That is the plan. Huh. Yeah, and so, 
what you were saying about the uh, owners, I don't know how much, as much as people boo Gary Bettman, he saved the Sabres basically from relocation. He saved the Senators from relocation. Penguins. He saved the Penguins from relocation. All of those teams could have got moved to Hamilton. They all could have gotten moved. Like they talked about a second Toronto team even. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that I have the same faith in the NFL caring about poor little Buffalo. Although so, good Al is from Western New York. Well, yeah. It's ties to the area. So but the issue is where where does the team go if um, L.A. Uh, the NFL is willing to put money up to help build that stadium? They already did that, right? So in the the, the L.A. Um, franchise, the NFL wants a big franchise fee. They're not just doing it to get because it's the blank size market for TV market. They want a chunk of that franchise fee. They're not going to get that on relocation. So. Buffalo ain't going there. Now, so if you start thinking about where you could move this team, and Jacksonville is actually a worse situation. Their yeah, attendance right. is terrible. Yeah. Um, where are you going to? Um, I don't you, think Toronto. I mean, I, I, don't, I think no, that's been no. a failure. Toronto, yeah. That, ex- that experiment was a, a, was a, a, a failure. Bust. I remember when yep. those tickets were available in 2008. It was basically needed a mortgage. You had, to, you had to buy all eight tickets, at least two tickets, Three were preseason, five were regular season. The cost was outrageous. It was like almost 500 bucks a ticket. Um, it's not a good experience in there. The, the Rogers Center, the old Skydome, they used to call it, right. is not built there. I went to one preseason game. I, I drank beer for the whole second half. I couldn't stand it. Um, there's not interest. And the other thing about Toronto is uh, if they get an NFL team, they want their own team. They see themselves as a major league city. Toronto Blue Jays, Toronto Maple Leafs, Toronto Raptors. They don't want no Buffalo Bills. They look down at Buffalo. That's the reality of it. So, and it's just not going to. And finally, and I was telling you about the corporate and how what Toronto's all about is corporate clients entertaining them. You can't entertain a client for the most part on a Sunday afternoon. They want to be with their families. Here, you have the ACC, the arena downtown, the uh, Rogers Center downtown. So you leave Bay Street, which is where all our businesses are. You walk across the street, you have lunch, you meet or dinner, you have your client, have a few drinks, you go to the event in ECC, and you're downtown and you're gone. Same thing with the baseball. It works. You're not, you're not going to be doing that on Sunday. I mean, you, tell, you, know, you try to tell your client, client to go tell his wife and, and kids, you know, guys, I can't be with you Sunday. I'm going with uh, XYZ Law Firm to go watch a, a Toronto, whatever you want to call it, football game. It, it's not going to cut it. Okay, my third thing. ESPN has acquired the rights to Wimbledon, which is significant because it ends a 43-year run of Wimbledon being on NBC. And the good thing about it is that ESPN has committed to live broadcasts of the semifinals and finals, as well as many of the other uh, matches being broadcast on ESPN3. And... Another significant part of this deal is that NBC Sports is kind of taking a beating ever since the loss of their top executive earlier in the year. And I wonder, what is going to be left of NBC Sports in five years? I'll take that if you want. I, Go uh, ahead, Spike. I think NBC's uh, in uh, – I mean, I don't, I don't see them being a major, major sports. You talk about Dig Enberg and, and uh, his departure and, and that – went over very messy, too. Now, I think that ESPN um, is truly the leader in sports uh, in the States um, versus is trying to do what they can on the hockey front um, and a couple other sports, I suppose. And, 
And then you got a lot of regional stuff like New Orleans Sport Network and, and uh, Comcast and all and right. all the other ones. So um, I think what I, what I see sports doing is being more regionalized uh, in, in North America. It certainly is in Canada. Um, I tell my um, my friends uh, how little I pay for my cable sports package and what I get, uh, and they they are foaming in the mouth. I pay for Sunday ticket, this package. I'm about to list what I get. Okay. And I'll tell you the price at the end. I get Sunday ticket. I get NHL center ice. Every hockey game. That's what you guys don't always shout about. NBA court. I get NASCAR in drive. I don't watch it. I don't believe in just turning left all the time. <laughs> I don't watch that. Um, uh, I get baseball games, whatever that thing's called. Extra uh, innings. Right. I get college basketball, NCAA college basketball to the tune of 40 to 50 a week. Um, I get uh, college football games to the tune of maybe a little few less than that. I get um, every OHL, which is the uh, minor league hockey right. here, where hockey. I get from. Yep. I get every game of that here. Uh, I'm forgetting a couple more things, but I get all that package, and I pay less than $30 a month. And wow. and this year when I re-hooked up because I was out of the country for a while, they gave me eight months free out of a year. And I... so. Um, you know, it's 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 just cheap, and I think that's sort of I think what's going to go. It's going more and more regionalization. There were talk about some pay-per-view stuff, at least in Canada. It's not really working. Uh, Leaf TV is free um, here. It's getting more and more games on. So I think NBC, if you're asking me, is in trouble. Um, I don't think it's in question. I don't like um, their coverage of the Olympics. The the refusal yeah, of most of the live stuff. If you have an opportunity to watch. Olympic coverage, not just this past one uh, uh, winter one in Canada, but any kind of coverage from uh, a Canadian perspective. Um, we cover all the sport, all live, and you get it on CBC or TSN or CTV, whatever. It's all live. If there's a major thing, uh, it's it's live. There's there's not all that tape and all that drama being created, which NBC was trying to make everything into a story that didn't need it. The story was the event itself. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We totally agree. We, we're all for more live programming. The more, the better. I hate the tape delay stuff. And uh, Don? All right. Well, that'll do it for three things. Spike, thanks a lot for joining us. Some no great problem. perspectives. We really enjoyed it. And Can I do a plug for... Uh, sure. Go ahead. Someone, yeah, go ahead. Someone is creating a new site, uh, new meaning it's first days, uh, which I think is going to go a long way. It's, um, it's another Buffalo Bills site. It's called The Charging Buffalo dot webs dot com so charging buffalo dot webs wbs obviously dot com and uh it's going to be uh i don't know where it's going to be i know the young man and uh he's got some big ideas from it and he's just starting out i have a feeling that's going to go a long way so i thought i'd give him a plug as well awesome uh do you have a personal twitter or anything you want to plug or anything like that i don't i I don't do the twit. I try to keep, other than on the message board, I try to keep the smallest internet footprint that I can. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back with AJ Delirio. Our next guest is from Churchville, Pennsylvania, and is a 1997 graduate of LaSalle University. He has written for Maxim, Penthouse, The New York Times, The Huffington Post, and was a staff writer at Philadelphia Magazine. 
He has been profiled by GQ magazine and was famously called out by a Michigan Wolverines blog that referred to him as an asshole. He is the editor-in-chief of the popular sports blog Deadspin, a site with over 2 million unique users a year. A warm sportscaster's welcome to AJ Delirio. How are you doing today, AJ? Good. How are you? Just one minor correction. I believe I graduated in 1996 and a half, actually. Oh, all right. So uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to get on the um, LaSalle University famous uh, alumnus page there. Exactly. <laughs> I uh, I fought with them. Well, not literally, but I looked all over for the uh, fight song because we usually bring our guests into the fight their fight song, and uh, couldn't find it. So I saw on your Facebook that you like Megadeth, so we did that. Yeah, that works as well. That works as well. I was I was actually I was actually curious about the uh, heavy sounding intro. I feel like I was like walking into some kind of like serious mad dog spot or something like that, <laughs> or, you know, off-road vehicles or something along those lines. <laughs> well, the first kind of strange thing I wanted to ask you about is how did you feel about being compared to Gonzo, the great Gonzo, in the, um, I guess, farewell piece that Dan Levy wrote a few months ago? You, you know about it, right? Uh, yeah, I've heard of it. I don't know if I actually ever read it. <laughs> yeah, so there's this guy named Dan Levy. I don't know if you know him, but he did a he did a podcast. I do. Yeah, he did a podcast called On the DL, and it went for about 550 episodes, and then they signed off, and, and they left with this kind of in, insane article where they compared people in the blogosphere to Muppets. And the reason they compared you to the great Gonzo is this. He is an odd-looking, unclassifiable alien creature with blue fur, blue eyes, and a long, crooked nose. He takes pride in his uniqueness and often enjoys everything that he does, no matter how playful or ill-advised it may be. So then he says, take out the blue fur, and it's the perfect bio. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, <laughs> whatever works for Dan. I mean, you know, I, I, I would... I. I'd, yeah, great. Works <laughs> for me. No comment, really. So another kind of interesting thing is, you know, we've had a lot of Sports Illustrated guests on, good ones, you know, Peter King and and some top guys. And now, whenever I get the magazine, I always kind of look for the people that have been on, read them first, and like the guys who won't come on, like Tom Verducci, I either skip it or read it last. And I guess that's going to happen now in the sports blogosphere because you beat the big lead to the show. <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna I reordered it so now it's dead spin then the big lead, so so well, I'm glad he finally came to your senses. But um, yeah, no, I'm sorry for the delay. I mean, I, uh, I I'm just terrible at email. I mean, it wasn't anything personal. No, I, I understand. I <laughs> We're glad to have you. So, all right, so let's get into some stuff here. One thing that has kind of been going around quite a bit, and I didn't start it or anything. I just read about it, and that's that. Everyone seems to think that Grantland is the new big rival for Deadspin. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that kind of assumption? Do you think that there is a rivalry there? And I mean, you're, fam- you're somewhat famous for calling out Simmons, but uh, what is it about him that maybe can irritate you or lead people to believe that there is a rivalry between Deadspin and Grantland? I don't. I don't think there's any kind of direct rivalry per se. I mean, I, I don't think that you know their their level of traffic and popularity is going to kind of just like dwarf ours. I mean, regardless of how long they've been around, and that was pretty pretty obvious. 
Um, there was the issue with you know our writer Tommy Craig's and going over to Grantland and how that kind of fell apart and there was like you know that whole I guess I guess there was that whole misunderstanding about exactly you know who is in the right about that whole entire thing. But I mean other than that, you know Grantland is basically going to be on our radar because we do cover sports media. They were probably the most heavily covered sports media entity, I think, in probably the last couple of years. Um, and it was a natural extension for us to kind of just do what we do. I mean, I don't really have any I mean, personal vendetta against Grantland or Bill Simmons. I mean, they've, you know, Simmons has always been good to me in the past, and, you know, we've always taken our shots at it, just like we do everybody else. But, um, you know, I, I think it was, it was just a natural extension for people when they were writing about Grantland to include us in that in that conversation just because of the fact you know, we do write about ESPN pretty extensively. We have written about Simmons in the past. But, uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's kind of unique because we did, like, leak in the same conversation a couple of years ago when TMZ was planning on writing, you know, launching its own sports right. site. Mm-hmm. So we were we were kind of part of that conversation, which was like you know the the main competitor to us would be you know TMZ's gossip site, which would be ramped up a notch. And now we're in the same conversation with this you know long form, apparently just like you know the purest of sports journalism, this new age of sports journalism conversation. So yeah, I'm pretty proud of that because we do kind of just live in both worlds in both ways. And if we're compared to both those two behemoths, I think we're probably doing something right. Am I wrong to think that a more natural rival or, I don't know, rival maybe isn't the right word, a more natural competitor is the big lead and not TMZ Sports or Grantland? I would say so. I mean, I don't really, I've never really used Deadspin and kind of uh, put it against any other sports block per se. I mean, and that's not anything to knock against any other sports block. I mean, it's just when I came into this, I really had... I, I really didn't have it like a full education about exactly what the sports blogosphere was. Um, you know, I'd always been a contributor to Deadspin, but I mean, it wasn't anything that I followed extensively in terms of just like you know who the major players were and who was successful and whatnot. Um, but I mean, for me, I mean, the only competition, and if you can even call it competition, I mean, the what I judge our success against is basically every other Gawker Media blog because I mean they're. Right basically trying to do the same thing that we are. Um, you know, so so it's, it would make no sense to kind of just, like, you know, go over to Big Lead and just, like, worry about what he's doing and as opposed to everybody else. You know, I mean, we have a fairly big staff now. I mean, it's been you know, slowly cultivated over two years from, like, two people to now about, like, all 11. So everybody's here for a reason to kind of do what they do best. And, you know, I just grade it from there. I mean, sometimes we're going to have great months in traffic and some days are, you know, some months are not going to be as great. Um, and that's how it goes. Um, you know, the thing that we have to just keep focusing on is trying to kind of evolve and grow the site as organically as possible. Just to maybe take one small step back before we get too far away from it, I, I guess a follow-up question I had in mind to the whole Grantland thing is maybe to put the rivalry aspect of it aside and just because you are someone who does critique sports media for a living, how do you think their launch has been in terms of uh, it being a viable sports blog, like a more general, like just critique or, or, um, you know, critical look at what Grantland has done, throwing away the we're a rival or competitor aspect, Mm -hmm. because what you do do is write about sports media and that has been a big story in the sports media. 
Right, and I and I think I, I think just like any other website that launches, they're going to kind of have to get their their sea legs a little bit and figure out like what the right mix is editorially. Um, I don't I don't know if it's if I'm just like judging it purely from an editor's perspective. I, I think that it's still focusing heavily on you know, the big names over there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's actually kind of just had the trickle down effect and like started developing these other stars yet. But I mean that's going to come in time. Um, you know, but I mean right now I mean when you have Bill Simmons's audience, which is just like a, a fire hose of traffic. I mean instantaneously. Plus you have you know the likes of. Chuck Klosterman and Chris Jones, and I mean everybody else who's involved in that site. Uh, it's going to be a great product. It's just a matter of, and, and this is what I said before. It's just like it's just a matter of, you know, can you you can't play an all-star game every single day. Um, you can't just have these writers kind of just throwing up stuff that they think is just almost like is something that's worthy more of like a Tumblr post or a longer Tumblr post. I think there has to be some more you know, substantive news value to a lot of the things they do in order for it to all work cohesively. And I think that's going to be one of their biggest challenges, the fact that, you know, ESPN has so many portals already that if something that Grantland breaks doesn't really jive with something that's happening on ESPN.com or one of their TV affiliates, it's going to be tougher for them to kind of get that out there independently. And I guess, in other words, you can't build a website on making Karate Kid analogies, right? I mean, there has I to mean, be... I don't, I don't know. I, I, I think you clearly can. I mean, that's, you know, Simmons' success I mean, has been part of, you know, part of his success has always been, you know, incorporating that pop culture aspect of his sensibility and what he grew up with and people latching onto it. So I, I, I think you can do that. It's just a matter of really taking this to, in order to take this to a next level and kind of, kind of make it infiltrate the mainstream media or at least a larger audience that is already that is already not like a Simmons fan, I, I think you're gonna have to kind of just do some more newsworthy stuff. Um, you know, I don't I don't know how many essays you can have that are these four thousand word pieces that are just like from the heart, regardless of how great they are. I don't know how much traction that has and I don't know how much staying power that is. But I mean I think I mean, we'll see in the next couple months, I mean I'm sure Grantland will be look a lot different than it did the first week it launched. Another story that's kind of dominated the sports media news uh, section of the paper, so to speak, has been the ESPN book that was written by James Andrew Miller. And I wonder, did you take out the extraordinary amount of time needed to read that monstrosity, or did you leave it to the person who did do the review for your site, which wasn't you, I'm pretty sure? Yeah, we didn't actually even do a formal review. I mean, we kind of covered it like an event and uh you know we had had an early copy of it and um you know, we were ever since we knew it was coming out to me we were going to cover it pretty extensively um you know i i do think it's it works as a book on its own just if you're a fan of sports media and a fan of i guess some business books and just like you know all the salacious stuff aside i mean i think it's a it's a pretty good interesting read for somebody who just you know does I work, I guess, within this industry, at least on the periphery. Um, but you know, as, as a whole, I mean, I think it's it's one of these it's one of these books that'll probably have a lot more staying power than we realize at this point, because I do think it it picks apart some of just how ESPN built its empire, 
and you know, shined a light on some things that I think many people who you know, may be just you know viewers of the cable channel, I mean, didn't realize how much work was actually put into it, and the egos behind all of it. Um, it's not surprising to somebody like me, but uh, you know, I think for a general audience who kind of consumes ESPN on a regular basis, I mean, I think they'll be a little fascinated to know just you know how inflated some of these guys have become in terms of just their success. How would the book have been different if? Deadspin would have wrote it. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's kind of tough. I mean, it's it's we've obviously since the inception and since Leach has been, you know, was editor in chief. I mean, we've always covered ESPN uh, like a soap opera in its own way. Um, so I'm sure it would have been a little more focused on that as opposed to just the business side of it. But uh, and overall, I mean, I, th- I think there was some stuff that that worked even though it didn't involve any kind of sexual harassment suits. It could have worked for us. So, I, I mean, for me, I think I w- we probably would have focused a little more on the more current stuff. I mean, and, and they did devote a lot to the last five years of ESPN. But, I mean, clearly if there was stuff that we were involved in heavily and we covered heavily, we'd probably devote a little more time to that in the book. Right. And, and there was, I think, a section where he did report on a party that, you were invited to, and you declined the invitation and sent uh, someone else. Was that accurately reported? Yeah, yeah, that was. I mean, that was, you know, that was a couple of years ago, and it was, it was not really done as a slight. I mean, I did end up going to Bristol. I just didn't stay for the whole three-day extravaganza. Um, and it wasn't, it was just I didn't know exactly what to report on while I was there, and I felt a little uncomfortable kind of, being there with the, you know, under the guise that this is a PR event and this is something that was put on, you know, to kind of praise ESPN. So, I mean, we had already done the extensive, you know, look at me, I'm going to Bristol kind of stories before. So I thought it would be better to give like a 21-year-old female intern with no sports writing experience whatsoever to kind of throw her into the mix and see what happens. And in the book, they kind of paint this picture of her as... Uh, maybe a 13-year-old girl meeting Justin Bieber or something. Um, <laughs> was that fair? I don't know if it was entirely fair, but I mean, li- I mean, listen, I mean, she was a little starstruck and a little all over her head in terms of the stuff that she was you know, kind of forced to cover in a lot of ways. But um, you know, it, it worked out for us, and, I, and obviously it was enough of an interesting anecdote for you know, Jim Miller and Tom Shales to include in the book. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk more about Deadspin specifically. Now, everybody knows that you paid some max amount of dollars to get the Brett Favre story a few springs ago. $12,000. $12,000, okay. And uh, that's really not, you know, that is what it is and probably money well spent. My question is, (laughs) I was doing some research for the interview and I stumbled upon a page on Deadspin where people now seem to be emailing you constantly just to try to sell you the stupidest shit. Like, oh, I saw this Dallas Cowboys cheerleader and she stole a street sign. You know, how much is that worth? And uh, I I got a a laugh out out of the page, and I think you do as well. And that maybe that's part of why you post them. But I'm just wondering, like, has there been a silliest? Has there been a stupidest? Has there been, you know, some outrageous requests that, you know, you just, it almost blew your mind? Um, you know, there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of things that people try to tell us that are uh, like you know, Facebook messages, 
or Facebook public things. And, and you know, there's one guy, I believe it was some guy who was trying to sell us a conversation that he had had with a recent, recent NFL draft pick who, like before the draft, said that the team that he would least like to play for is X team, but eventually got drafted by that person, mm. got drafted by that team. So this person was trying to sell it to us and, you know, asked for thousands and thousands of dollars um, and was very adamant about it and just said, you know, this is going to make a lot of news and blah, 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 but... I, you know, I was ex- trying to explain to the guy, I was just like, well, you know, it is on Facebook, so I'm sure there are many other people who have already seen it. Um, you know, if it was that news, <laughs> I'm sure it will probably crop up on its own. But, um, you know, I mean, it, it's just stuff along those lines where people are trying to kind of set a, set a price point on things that we don't really have it for them. I mean, and that's why I usually fire back with some like you know ridiculously low and oddball number which will be like in the sixty four dollars and thirty seven cents or something along those lines. <laughs> and just to go back and forth with them just to gauge how serious they are, even though I'm not willing to really even shell out for it. So so I mean we paid for three items in the whole entire time I've been at Deadspin. And it's it's a rarity that we will actually pay for something. It's usually we're paying for something to kind of complete a story to show some visual evidence of just something that will substantiate the point. It's never really paying for information of a gossip nature or something along those lines. I <laughs> I guess you wear many hats at Deadspin, and maybe a new hat you now wear is like you're you're part Chum Lee from the Pawn Stars or something, and you have to kind of convince people that this antique or gem that they think they have really isn't worth what they think it is. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, have, I have been in those situations where, I mean, I've actually just kind of steered people to other sites who I think will actually pay more and will pay for stuff like that. Um, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, I know that, you know, sites like World Star Hip Hop and, uh, you know, TMZ, I mean, we'll, we'll you pay probably a lot more than we will for certain items. Um, so, I mean, I'm usually trying to be as helpful as possible to people who are trying to sell this stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't want to begrudge them any kind of, you know, capitalistic endeavor just because it's something that we may not be interested in. I guess another question I had, this is something I found interesting. I was, again, I was doing some research for the, for the interview, and I stumbled upon a, a very, very nice and well-written profile that, GQ wrote a GQ magazine wrote about you. I guess my first question is, kind of what goes into spending time with a GQ writer? Like, was it a surreal experience to? I don't know if they wine and dine you, but to be kind of in the presence of a GQ writer, kind of like almost reversing roles, where you're normally the guy who is looking for the information and trying to write the story, and now here you are walking with this writer for this great men's magazine, GQ, and they're trying to find out information. Do you think you were more guarded than the normal person they interview, or do you think that you were maybe even a better interview because you kind of knew what they were looking for and they didn't have to fish for it as much? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's definitely more the latter. I mean, I was, you know, after you know doing dozens of magazine profile pieces for various different magazines over the year. I mean, I know what essentially it makes like a good candidate for these things. So, I mean, there were I spent around eleven days, I guess, maybe total, just talking to and you know being around like Gabriel Sherman and you know trying to give him 
as as candid and you know realistic realistic an experience in terms of what my day to day was at that time. And, and granted, this was during the time at the height of you know the fire phenomenon, and I was out a lot and doing a lot of stuff and kind of just really coming to terms with you know the newfound fame that Deadspin had. had. And um, you know, I, I think he did a really great job, kind of you know portraying just like you know what I was doing at that time and what it was like to deal with like a lot of people basically foreign against that story in particular, especially from just like a, you know, a journalistic and ethical perspective. Um, and I think he did a great job. I mean, I couldn't be more pleased. I mean, it wasn't, you know, something that I think my, my parents were a little disturbed at the fact that how much I was drinking during the time. But, uh, you know, other than that, I mean, it was, uh, he did a great job. And I don't think I could have done it any better given what he was, had to work with. So the last time Howard Stern was on Rolling Stone, he sent Baba Bowie to the newsstand to buy like five or six copies of the magazine. When your profile eventually was released, what was your reaction? Did you did you rush to read it, or uh, did you not care to read it, or I mean, what was your reaction when it was eventually in print? I I mean I took I took a good couple of days and ignored it. To be honest with you, I mean it's uh, it's a little bit of an unnerving experience. I mean, especially just not knowing full well exactly what direction he was going to go. Um, and you know, I, and I know obviously I'd heard about it just from just basically just like my coworkers and a lot of other people had read it before I had. And you know, I got kind of to like at least get to at least some insight as to what there was going to be inside the magazine pages, but, um, you know, for the most part, yeah, it's, it's a little unnerving and disorienting, and you don't know exactly how to react. Um, you know, I didn't ever have any kind of plans of promoting it on the site. I mean, I just figured if people were going to be interested in it, they'd find it on their own. Um, but, you know, other than that, I mean, it was, it, was pretty, it was pretty normal. I mean, it lasted about a week in terms of just, like, you know, what the interest was in it, and then it went away, just like everything else does. In the article, you did mention that you do have a little bit of regret for posting a video of a girl and a guy having sex in a bathroom. Um, and uh, does that kind of stand as the one kind of regret that you do have, or is there something else maybe as you reflect on your years at Deadspin that you kind of wish you didn't do, or, or are you pretty comfortable saying, well, oh, maybe that was the one thing that we shouldn't have done and just kind of moving on from it? No, I mean, I think there are, there are you know, a lot, lots of posts that I, mean, I think we'd have to take back. I mean, I mean, to at least kind of approach in a different way but uh, i mean i think that one in particular just because it was such a it was something that i mean was somewhat of just like a nothing kind of just fill in the gap friday type of post that kind of mushroomed into this really really just like you know horrible situation with i mean both her and dealing with her dad and just it was it was just another level of kind of stress that I wasn't really prepared for it just because of the fact also that I didn't really care. I mean, we pulled it down right away and just like, no big deal and move on. But it just, it, you know, it lasted a lot longer and just became a lot, it became a lot more entwined in these, in this girl and her father's kind of quest to kind of get this off the internet than I probably would have hoped for. But I mean, you know, for the most part, I mean, it was something that was just a, it was just a, another lesson in the sense that, I mean, look, these things that, you, every post basically needs to kind of you know, deserves a lot more 
than a once over and just the, there are no throwaway posts and things like this that you think are completely innocuous and completely you know have nothing to do with the site can kind of turn into a bigger deal if you're not careful no regrets in posting the Aaron Andrews video oh, we didn't post the Aaron Andrews video oh okay well I, th- I did say in the <laughs> GQ article that that I thought it said in the GQ article that you did post no, Something. I mean, what had happened was when, you know, we had originally got the story, I mean, and remember, I mean, our story was basically about how an ESPN lawyer had written, like, a cease and desist to this site where Aaron Andrews wasn't even named in the link to this video that was up. And um, you know, we had basically put a link to the site, which had already pulled down the video. But what had happened was oh, okay. that once it, once it was found out that it was Aaron Andrews, like, people in the comments section started reconstructing the link and... You know, it had just kind of spiraled in from there, and then began, and then we got Twitter hacked, and like we were getting credit for like posting the video. And so, I mean, we never ever posted the video. You bring up Twitter. How do you think Twitter has kind of changed sports? Um, I, I think just in terms of it, the immediacy of it, it's really kind of it, it's taken just what used to be um, like a fan's first pers- you know perspective and made it into real time. And I think, like, everybody that's... There, there are always going to be 40 million reactions to a game. And plus, you add into the, you know, equation that just, like, you know, the beat reporters have to kind of just, like... If they get a piece of breaking news, they have to kind of just, like, go to Twitter first as opposed to their, what the, their publication. And um, just from an athlete's perspective, I mean, we get to kind of see the personalities of these athletes that, I mean, have kind of been restricted to us before. Has Twitter changed what you do at all? Yeah, I mean, from day to day, I mean, it's it's probably the first news source that you check out. I mean, I, I think that most people are like that, that that's become, you know, whoever is on your Twitter feed is basically just like, you know, what used to be your blog roll. And now it's a, kind of in an abbreviated and truncated form, and it's a lot easier to kind of digest, and you can really gauge what, you know, the public interest is on a story and go from there and kind of, you know, build your day around it sometimes. Do you find yourself watching games with your Twitter feed? What I mean is like, you know, it's like, oh, it's time for the Super Bowl and it's me and my friends and also my Twitter feed are here and, you know, a play happens um, and I react yeah, I to it. Say, and, I wouldn't say watching it per se, but I mean, I do definitely kind of check in with it after, after like, you know, something like you know, the NBA championship. I mean, after something like the NCAA tournament. I mean, you definitely do get it. It does add a different experience to the whole entire sports watching. One of the most incredible aspects of Deadspin is the Dead Wrestler of the Week series, uh, written by someone called The Masked Man, which makes me chuckle because some of my favorite wrestlers are all from a place called Parts Unknown. But I wonder, do you think we'll ever know who the masked man is? And why do you think the masked man prefers to be anonymous? Because he does great work. I'd love to credit him for it. Um, he actually has revealed himself. He's a writer for Grantland right now. And uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he works in the publishing industry. His name is uh, Dave. And, uh, yeah, he goes by his original byline on Grantland right now, writing uh, wrestling recaps. But he still does the dead wrestler for the week for us under the masked man pseudonym. It's okay for you to uh, have someone who writes for your site and Grantland? Uh, yeah, not to, as long as they're not full-time at Grantland, I believe they're allowed to write elsewhere. I mean, other than that, all full-time Grantland writers aren't allowed to write anywhere, you know, especially right. us, I'm sure. Right. Uh, what do you think the future of Deadspin is? Where do you see the site in five years? 
maybe a generic question. I but. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I could actually look for, ahead that far, but I mean, yeah, the, I mean, the progress, I mean, I can just kind of gauge it by the progress. I mean, this is my third year as editor-in-chief, I guess, about two weeks ago. And, um, you know, from now, I mean, just in terms of just like the growth that we've had, I mean, I want to, um, you know, take this as far as possible. I mean, I like the fact that we are, we have, you know, broken some stories that have gotten some national attention and some stories that have kind of shifted the conversation a bit. And, you know, we'll continue to do that and continue to kind of expand our coverage area and uh, see what works. I mean, I, I think that right now, I mean, the whole Internet, at least, you know, sports media in general is in this state of flux. And you know, I feel like that we've been kind of on at least, you know, at the front end of it as opposed to just like trying to play catch-up. So, I mean, I, I think we're just going to continue doing what we're doing and see what happens. The sportscasters are here with A.J. Delirio from uh, the editor-in-chief of Deadspin.com. Just a couple uh, minutes left. I guess the next question I have for you, you mentioned the growth, and you've went from about 700000 to $2 million in your time there. Is there anything else that you're most proud of um, during your time as the editor-in-chief of Deadspin besides the obvious, which would be the growth? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like the fact that we've, we do have a, a component that I think where we can have the gossip coexist with the longer, well-reported feature stories. I mean, I think that's, that's kind of what gives us a leg up on a lot of other sites that are just, you know, both traditional sports sites and, and men's sites in general. I mean, I, I think that there is always, like, our identity wasn't fully, of, you know, evolved at the time when we started doing all this stuff. But I think now that we're kind of in this, this very good and, you know, zone of, and of flexibility where we can do some of the more trashier, typical blog things, but, I mean, have them coexist with a, a longer, well-thought-out piece. And, I mean, that's a, that's a great thing. It's just like an editor where we can actually just do those things and kind of just, in some ways, get away with it and not lose any of our audience. You mentioned, you know, not having any regrets, and I read another funny thing from your G- GQ article was you kind of had an encounter with Rex Ryan, kind of seeing him after the ribbing and the joking on the site. Uh, what is it like when you, you kind of take someone to task and, and then you, you kind of meet them in the real world, so to speak? Is it awkward? Is it something that you feel bad about? Or just kind of have fun with it and, and just kind of like just break down the ice right away? I mean, it's, you know, there hasn't been really kind of any real one-on-one like personal encounters with anybody, but I, I mean, I'm sure at some point it's going to happen. And, you know, the reality is, I mean, it's nothing that I don't stand behind that we haven't put on the site. So if, someone wants to complain about it in a public forum or <laughs> take a swing at me. I mean, you know, those are, those are reactions that I don't necessarily want, but I mean, I'm also at the same time not going to kind of just say, just like, well, I'm just doing my job to everything. I mean, people are going to have a visceral reaction. Sometimes it's not going to be a favorable one. So, I mean, just kind of just roll with it and hope for the best and, you know, hope that they knew you were just, you know, trying to do my job and trying to get the story out there. And if they have a different version of it, I mean, they're more than welcome to kind of talk to us and we can uh, correct it. One last thing. It's kind of random. Uh, definitely not what we've, the focus of the interview, but I noticed on your Facebook that you're a big Pearl Jam fan, or at least you're a big enough fan to like them on, on Facebook. Yeah. And we're big Pearl Jam fans here on the Sportscasters. And, uh, how big of a Pearl Jam fan are you? Are you going to be going to the 20th anniversary Destination Weekend I am, concert? Going, I am going to Wisconsin for Labor Day. So how pumped yeah. are you about yeah. that? Like, I mean, we're giddy. 
Uh, yeah, I'm very pumped. I mean, in fact, I mean, we're actually, we did a music week last year theme on Deadspin, and um, this year it's actually going to be kind of just completely devoted to the 20th anniversary of Pearl Jam. So Pearl Jam is basically going to be like our, our intertwining theme for the week. So we've, we've lined up a lot of stuff with them personally and, the, like, you know, their agents and stuff like that. And, you know, we're going to be a big part of, like, the 20th anniversary, which is kind of cool for me because I love the band so much. But, I mean, I think that they kind of dovetail so nicely into, you know, sports and music, both in general. I mean, that it's a pretty easy fit. So we have to hook up at the Destination Weekend because I owe you a beer for coming on. So definitely that. And if you've ever seen the, I guess it started as a VHS tape called Single Video Theory. And at the very end, the interviewer asks Eddie Vedder, uh, Pearl Jam means a lot to a lot of people. What does it mean to you? And I guess my last question for you is, Pearl Jam means a lot of things to a lot of people. What does it mean to you? Uh, yeah, you know, it was, uh, I, I think it can, I mean, is there one word answer for this? I don't think I can have one. But well, I mean, actually, Eddie Vedder didn't like, answer. He, he kind of laughed and didn't have an answer. So I guess that could be an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I just know that I think it's, it was, it was probably the, one of the first real concert experiences that I've ever had where I kind of just felt very, like uh, blown away by what was going on stage. And not that I hadn't seen other concerts before. It was definitely not the first concert I'd ever seen. But uh, I think the first time I saw the band is larger than just like the album itself. And they became, you know, they've kind of transformed into this more of a live band and, you know, had that type of following. And it seems like that, uh, you know, that's always kind of stuck with me. And that's the way I've kind of just appreciated them over the years. I got 70 plus shows in me. How many you got? Oh, not even close to that. Probably 12. Brutal. 12 is impressive, though. I mean, yeah. 70 is insane. 12 is impressive. But yeah, it's AJ yeah, De- but it's good for you. <laughs> AJ Delirio, Deadspin.com. You can follow him on Twitter at AJ Delirio. You can follow Deadspin at Deadspin.com. Thanks a lot for being on the Sportscasters. We really appreciate it. No problem, Stephen. Thanks. All right, I want to thank AJ Delirio for coming on. That was awesome. Really fun. It's always cool to have a fellow Pearl Jam fanatic on the show. Book Club, real quick update today. This is basically the last week to read The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle, and The End of America's Childhood before Jane Levy is going to be on the show to talk about it. There's no reason that you couldn't read it after the fact, but this is your last chance to... Read it before she comes on. From what I can tell, the Kindle edition with audio is no longer free. <laughs> You're going to have to pay $16.99 if you want the Kindle edition. Last week was free. I hope you took advantage of pretty incredible, incredible deal. Uh, the, hardco- uh, the hardcover book is $17.06 on Amazon and the paperback is $11.13. How do they come up with these prices? I have no idea. $11.13? <laughs> Who knows? And then if you add them to your cart, you'll notice like all week long you'll get updates like, oh, it dropped three cents or went up two cents. I, yeah. I have no idea. So, all right, Amazon. Interesting. But The Last Boy, it's the book of the month. It's by Jane Levy. Jane's going to be on next week to talk about it. I also wanted to mention, if you're, a fan of, if you're a fan of Grantland, which is obviously something we just talked about with AJ, 
And if you go to grantland.com and you click on features, you will find that about four down or so, Jane Levy has a feature called One Round, which is about her father who went, was going blind and uh, decided to play one last round of golf. And it's a really incredible essay. And uh, I'd encourage you to check that out as well because I'm sure we'll be talking to Jane about it. And if you remember a while back when we had Alex Belthon, we talked a little bit about his book that he put together about Yankee Stadium and a bunch of essays of people's experiences at Yankee Stadium. And Jane Levy is also in that. Um, Lasting Lasting Yankee Stadium Memories, it's called. And there is a Kindle version, which right now is $2.90, which you can't beat. And it's a really cool book to read because it's just a bunch of essays, so you can read it one at a time. And uh, Jane has a story in there about how her grandma lived really close to Yankee Stadium and how she used to have almost like a double trip to grandma's house and to Yankee Stadium. And it's pretty cool because she talks about specific games. And uh, one of my three things a while back was about an app that you can get called Pennant, which basically has the scores and details from all the baseball right, games. Right. And you can find the game that Jane Levy was at and you know find out her accuracy, which is 100%. And it's just kind of a cool mix of a bunch of things that have been on the show. So I'm excited to have Jane on uh, next week for episode 30, which is going to help make episode 30 be a little bit more special. And speaking of special, we're going to take a break and come right back with, I think, the first Buffalo, New York native to be on the show that isn't like us or Anthony, right? (laughs) Might be. We've had some Buffalo reporters. We've had people who've reported from Buffalo, but I don't think Tim Graham. Tim Graham's definitely not from From Buffalo. Buffalo, He's from Ohio. Anyway, Mike Harrington's going to join us from the Buffalo News, so we'll be right back with Mike Harrington. Our next guest is from Buffalo, New York, and is a graduate of Canisius College. Currently, he is a columnist for the Buffalo News and has a blog on the newspaper's website called Inside Pitch. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Mike Harrington. How are you doing today, Mike? Hey, that's a a good musical interlude bringing me in. Very good. Thanks for having me. Just like that. We found that real quick. So... Okay, a little bit of a backstory here real quick for you. So we've made good friends uh, over the course of doing this podcast. And one of the friends that we made is a guy named Richard Deitch, who uh, covers TV, basically, and uh, some, some women's sports, too, women's basketball, for Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. And every time he has come on the show, he has asked me a question before he started. Have you had Mike Harrington on yet? Have you had Mike <laughs> Harrington on yet? And I've had to say no every time so far. But next time I'll be able to say yes, so definitely welcome to you. But I hope you know that you have a huge fan in Richard Deitch. 
Well, I go back both ways with uh, Mr. Deitch. I mean, he is a legend uh, in the local media in terms of coming down from working his way up, coming through UB, and uh, the guy's work ethic is just about second to none. And here he is now at SI.com with a tremendous column called Media Circus talking about the big media issues of the day in sports. He's done swimsuit issue interviews. He's done uh, women's college basketball final fours and just has made a tremendous name for himself at Sports Illustrated. Somebody people from Buffalo and people at UB should certainly be proud of. Yeah, and the only thing I... You mentioned the Media Circus column, and I love it. The only thing that frustrates me is we've actually been ranked 11th, I believe, the last like five months. And they only... They only list 10, so that's really... F- <laughs> well, I have made it a couple times. I have just you? paid him. I wanted to make media tweet of the week once or twice, and <laughs> I've gotten a couple mentions there, so that, that's fine by me. I, I feel honored enough just to get even a mention. Well, you're doing well. We, we keep finishing 11th. We can't crack it. But a uh, bunch of things to cover today, and uh, I guess the first thing we should start with is the Sabres, and I guess I have a real general question for you, and that is how do you think... Darcy Regeer and Terry Pagula and Mr. Black did with their first July 1st? Well, I think it's twofold. Um, The Robin Regeer trade is an excellent trade in terms of value, uh, and it's an excellent trade in terms of what they got. They needed a veteran physical defenseman to help this young defense corps, which, you know, didn't hold up real well physically in the playoff series. Um, so I love the Robin Regeer trade. Then you have to look at it from the standpoint of free agency. Okay, did they overpay for Christian Erhoff and Billy Leno? Absolutely they did. I mean, uh, Toronto columnist Damian Cox even called it ridiculous. And let's think about what we would have said a year ago for another team paying those kind of contracts to those two guys. But it's a little different in this situation because... I think Terry Pagula was sending a message to his own locker room. He was sending a message to all the fans in Buffalo, and he was sending a message across the National Hockey League that the words he uttered in February of winning the Stanley Cup, he was serious about. Christian Erhoff should not be the third or fourth highest paid player in the NHL this year. He is. He's going to make $10 million this year. Um, but the message his signing sends is a tremendous one. Here's a guy who was in Game 7 of the Finals. He will help the Sabres in the back line. He will be a good addition to the power play. And forevermore, the Buffalo Sabres are major players in the free agent market now, let there be no doubt. And that's what Christian Erhoff and Billy Leno did, no matter how they play out their contracts from this point on. Did Billy Leno surprise you as a plan B? Like, Did that kind of feel as out of left field as it did for me just as I kind of watched things unfold. I mean, I, I thought we'd be bigger players. Or I thought the Sabres would be bigger players in the Brad Richardson than they ended up being, obviously not even going up there. But if they were to focus on a plan B, I, I'm surprised it was Leno just because, I mean, he, he hasn't played center in a few years, although they want us to believe that he is a center. And I don't know that he's Lindy Ruff's kind of player, is he? Well, there's a couple points here. The first point is I agree with you. You know, if you need a number one center, go get a center. Don't bring me a, a converted guy who you're going to convert into a center who's never played center in the NHL. That's what they're trying to do here. That's why I'm not so sure they're not still trying to get a deal done to get Paul Stasty or another true center in here. Um, you know, he's a European. They haven't had a whole lot of... Uh, uh, like for European players lately, their top draft choice, Joe Army, was a fin. They haven't drafted Euros in a few years, so that's a little unusual. But the thing about Billy Leno, 
Obviously, he scored a big overtime goal against him in the playoff series. They know he scored a ton of points in the playoffs two years ago. They have some guys in their team who put up pretty good numbers who have not put up good playoff numbers. And I really think Billy Lano's performance in the playoffs the last two years impressed them and I think was a big factor in that decision to bring him along and bring him in here. Now, they overpaid him too, but... You know what? How much is overpaying now when the cap is $64.8 million if your owner is willing to basically go to the cap? And that's basically what the Sabres are looking at. Yeah. It, 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 I guess the best thing, regardless of the players that came in, is for the first time we were, we were buyers. For the first time in a long time, anyway. We were buyers, and we were in the conversation. And last week we had Greg Wyshynski, the puck daddy, on, and uh, Sarah from SI.com, and both of them mentioned the Sabres as potential dark horses for Brad Richards, and even though it didn't happen, there's no other time in my history as a fan that I could have brought two people in the national media on and asked them who is the dark horse for uh, the number one free agent, and they would have said the Sabres. And I always have this saying, you know, are you in the league or not? You know, and the Sabres haven't been in the league in this part of the wheeling and dealing. Free agency is part of how you build a team in the National Hockey League. They haven't been involved in a major way, and that's how they've fallen behind. They're now in the league now. They're now able to make the big moves. And ultimately, if you look at it, they're a team that plays basically in front of full houses every night. They have some of the biggest television ratings of any American-based team. There's no reason, and they have a deep pocket owner. There's no reason to think the Buffalo Sabres should not be a major market team in the National Hockey League, no matter what their status is in the NFL. When the city of Buffalo is obviously a small market team in, in the NFL, in the NHL, the Sabres should be a major player and a major market team, and they're finally acting like it. It's about time. You mentioned a possible trade, and that would be nice. If they don't make a trade, and this is the roster that they take to Europe with them, how do you think they match up against the rest of the Eastern Conference? It's a tough question I know to, to answer right now, but just in general and just kind of looking down the road a little bit, is this a contending team? Yeah, I mean, they're clearly better than they were last year. Okay, now let's interpolate that out for a second. They were close last year. There were some different things that went wrong. There were injuries. You know, that the defense wasn't very good. Ryan Miller had up and down spurts at times. Stafford was very up and down. But if you look at it, they lost in Game 7 to the Flyers. Probably should have won that series. Villaleno certainly said they should have won that series. The Boston Bruins carried the Stanley Cup around the ice in Vancouver. The Sabres beat the Boston Bruins four times last season. Let's not forget that. That's an easy stat people have forgotten about here. And I know the playoffs are a different animal. The Sabres beat the Bruins four times in the regular season. That's what I say they would have beaten them in a playoff series, but there's enough talent here to be competitive with the top teams in the NHL. Over 82 games... The Sabres should have one of the best five to seven goalies in the league. Last year he wasn't for a variety of reasons. I expect Ryan Miller to bounce back this year. Kind of along the way, Tim Thomas bounced back for the Bruins. You know, for all the struggles the Sabres had last year, especially early in the year, they had a 96-point season. You know, so I really think the Sabres are definitely looking at uh, – a good run at the division title with Boston and a top four rung in the Eastern Conference, and then you take your chances in the, once the playoffs start. But I think initially I do want to throw a little water on all these uh, premature championship celebrations. Everybody's saying Stanley Cup, Stanley Cup. I want to remind you, the Sabres have not won a playoff series since 2007. Before you start talking Stanley Cup finals and 
parades and everything. Win a first-round series first, then I'll really start paying attention. Do you think Derek Roy has a spot in the locker room? I know they, I know they brought him back to to play in the last playoff game or or two. I can't recall, but they seem to do really, really well without him. And I kind of thought that he might, and he still might, be the guy that they would use to lure someone like uh, Stastny. Do you think he'll be on the team next year, or do you think he will be someone that they will try to move here over the summer? No, I think they ha- they need to keep Derek Roy. I think that's the whole point to acquire center, is Derek Roy, especially at his price, at his contract, $4 million, Derek Roy is a terrific number two center. Mm-hmm. Derek Roy is not a terrific number one center. Having said that, he was having the best year of his career last year when he got hurt. He was. And it's very easy to say, well, they were much better after Roy got hurt. Well, first of all, I would say that when Roy was playing, most everyone else on the team was terrible, and Roy was having a good year. Then Roy went out, some of the other guys woke up. You know, Drew Stafford, who hadn't been heard from the first two months, woke up. Thomas Vanek started creating and leading more. Miller was better in the second half. Tyler Myers remembered who he was in the second half. I don't think that any of those things can be blamed on the absence of Derek Roy. They suddenly played better because Roy wasn't there. Um, I think that's more coincidental. That wasn't cause and effect whatsoever. And if they make a trade for a Paul Stastny or a Jason Spetzer or someone like that, I still want Derek Roy in this roster as the number two center. I think that would be a tremendous move on their part. That's you know where he probably belongs. What piece would you try to move then for a Spetzer or? If you got to choose what wing, I assume you'd want to tra- trade a winger, maybe a young defenseman. If you got to choose the pieces for a Stastny, would it be a, would it be Stafford? Would it be someone else? Well, they're very heavy on right wing, and they're very heavy on defense right now. You know, um, the problem is, do you want someone to take your bad contract or your garbage, so to speak? Um, you know, somebody got to take a Pominville five and a half million. Sakara just filed for arbitration. Um, you're going to need to send a young prospect. You've got a bunch of those. I mean, you can make a package together, but I think it's interesting to note that everyone has talked about Stastny and Spezza. They didn't move at the start of free agency in a trade. So we don't know for a fact that either of those two guys are available. It's not like the, the Avalanche or the Senators sent them somewhere else. Um, Darcy Regeer did say he was going to free agency first, and then he'd be looking at trades. I'm sure he's still going to look at trades. They have, they're, they're getting pretty tight to the cap here. They have some money, obviously, that can go in the minor leagues in Coda League and Morrison. But they have some moves to make here. And, you know, I still think they are, a, they are a very good team. Are they a Stanley Cup elite contending team without a number one center? Probably not. Let's shift gears a little bit. I, I do want to ask you a couple things about the Bills, but we'll save that for the very end. You're kind of the, you're kind of the baseball guy for the Buffalo News. Mm-hmm. And I do want to ask you a couple questions about the Bisons, but first let's talk about Major League Baseball. Anything bother you about the All-Star picks? Are you kind of just okay with it as it is, or do you want to make a case for uh, Andrew McCutcheon in Pittsburgh or someone who has left off the teams? Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, the, the biggest snubs are Paul Canerco in the AL and Andrew McCutcheon in the NL. And that's fine. You've got to pick a guy from each team, and there's different positions, and it you run out of spots eventually. Okay. Well, how does Andrew McCutcheon not get in the final five vote? 
I mean, at least Canerco's in the final five vote for the last spot. I can't even fathom how McCutcheon is not in that final five vote. To me, that's the biggest issue. You're going to have snubs in the selection, but that's what that last voting online ballot is for, is basically for that one guy who might have been unfairly left out. McCutcheon should have been in that ballot. That's my biggest complaint. You know, other than that, there's, you know, 66 players picked, you know, for the most part. I thought the selections were pretty good. Let's talk about the Pirates for a little bit, because anyone who's ever been to PNC Park knows it's probably one of the most beautiful places in America to spend a Sunday afternoon. And they've been so bad for so long, but they have had a little bit of a better start to the season this year, hovering a little bit over 500, and obviously McCutcheon has been great. Do you think that there's light at the end of, this tu- end of the tunnel for Pirates fans? Yeah, there's two things here. I mean, I I trust Neil Huntington, the general manager, implicitly. I know him very well from his days in Cleveland when he was the farm director building some terrific teams in Buffalo, and I really thought he would draft and develop well enough to get the Pirates back to where they want to go. And he told me point blank a couple years ago, we're not having any parades here just if we win 81 games. We are here to win championships. So that's the first point. I believed in him. I think one of Neil's problems, he just didn't have a good manager. John Russell was not a good manager. They lost 105 games last year. The team wasn't ready and mature. You bring in a guy like Clint Hurdle, and I think it's made a huge difference. Clint Hurdle's been in the World Series twice in the last four years as the Rockies manager in 07, the Rangers hitting coach last year, and he's really nurtured these young guys. And when I was there a couple weeks ago talking to Clint Hurdle, you could sense how much he enjoyed bringing these young guys along and how much he believed in them. And I think it's the first time as players some of these guys have had belief from their manager, and it really shows, and the confidence level is tremendous. And, You know, 1992 is a long time ago, but I really think the Pirates might get it done this year in terms of breaking that streak of non-winning seasons, and then they can move on from there and really go into serious contention. And right now they are in contention, only a couple games out on their division. Do you think the Indians can maintain the run that they've been on? I know they struggled a little bit in May uh, or June, and they are still near the top of the AL Central, if not at the top. Do you think they can hang on all season and be near the top? Or do you think that the White Sox and Tigers and maybe even the Twins who've played much better are going to be the class of that division? I think the Indians can hang on. It's not an overly difficult division. Um, Their pitching has been okay. Their bullpen's been pretty good. The Indians could use another bat, especially a right-handed bat. You know, Shinsu Chu is still out a few more weeks with the broken thumb. Their offense is a big question mark, but as Drupal Cabrera's had a great year at short and at the plate, I'd like to see them get another bat at the deadline, and it's a good test of ownership there in Cleveland. Are they going to spend a little money? They said, well, when we're contending, we'll get a little more money. We'll spend. They're contending now, maybe a year or two earlier than they thought they would be. It's going to be a real test for them. They do need one more bat. Otherwise, I think... The Tigers will have enough to overcome them, and Justin Verlander just had a lights-out year. But even they have problems. Their starting pitching has been horrendous lately. They, might, they probably need another arm at the deadline. Yeah, and the Indians are a game and a half up as we speak right now. Uh, pitching has really been the story of the season. The cut fastball was written about. There was an article in Sports Illustrated devoted to the cut fastball. And... Um, I wonder, is pitching the big storyline for you in the first half, or are there another storyline or two that you think have really uh, made this Major League Baseball season what it has been so far? Well, I think the pitching, you're right. I mean, we're starting to see, you know, just legions of great young pitchers, you know, at all levels, and then you get a guy like Verlander who's really dominating, and you're almost getting to the point, it's like Nolan Ryan in this heyday. You think you might see a no-hitter every time out. Um, 
you know, great athletes aren't necessarily going into baseball right now. The ones who seem to be going into it are great pitchers, and they seem to be groomed from an early age, and you get a lot of dominance in the pitching end of it. Um, you know, storylines to look as we look down the rest of the season, and doesn't get talked about a lot, is scheduling, travel, makes it tough. Uh, all the talk about drug testing, let's not forget, you can't have amphetamines in baseball anymore. That's how I think guys were surviving day games after night games and three double headers in two weeks in September. And it's going to be very interesting to see which players and which teams break down later in the season here as uh, the schedule and the weather really heat up. Another thing I wanted to ask you, Major League Baseball has been talking a little bit about realigning and changing their playoff system, adding more wildcard teams, and we talked a little bit about that on the show last week. If you, if Bud Selig came to Buffalo and said, you know what, Mike Harrington, you can realign baseball any way you'd like and create a playoff system that you think is best, what, how, what would you do? I wouldn't add any more wildcard teams. We already had a situation last year where the New York Yankees basically didn't play hard in the month of September when they were in a division race with the Tampa Bay Rays because they knew they were already going to make the playoffs anyway. And I thought that was a terrible precedent for baseball, that a team didn't press hard in September and was more interested in resting pitchers and setting their rotation. And it was the Yankees, for God's sake. Um, now you're proposing another series with two wildcard teams play each other. I just think it's going to have too many repercussions and look like week 16 or 17 of the NFL where too many teams are taking games off when that should be the most exciting time of the year in baseball. The great division races have already been watered down. I like the wild card. It brings more teams in, keeps them interested most of the summer. I like one wild card in each league. I don't see any reason to touch it anymore. All right, let me, let me, let me see if you like this. We move Houston into the AL West. We got the three divisions of five in each league, finally, instead of having one of four and one of six. And then to make y your biggest complaint was that the Yankees didn't try. Well, what if there was two wild, three wildcard teams and the three division winners made the playoffs, and instead of having a series, it started with a one-game playoff where the third division winner would have to play the worst of the three wild cards, and the two wild card teams would have to play each other to make the actual playoffs, thus making winning the division a very important thing in baseball again. To so you're going to have a team win a division and spend 162 games winning that for the right to play one game to move on? Well, they would be the lowest division winner of yeah, the three. Well, they want a division, though. I think you can't devalue it that much. I think one of the things that I've always been a proponent of, if you kept it the same, I don't like the fact that it's that easy for the wild card team to make the World Series. I think right. you could keep the division series best of five, give the wild card game one at home, and give the team they're playing games two, three, four, and five, and make it tougher for the wild card. It would really value winning the division. That might be a way you could do it. Interesting. The Bisons, you know, I live in Buffalo. I love baseball. I love going to the ballpark. Yet, I never want to go there, and I'm not, I'm not sure why. I just I get there, and I'm just bored. I, I don't know. It's, it's weird. Is there anything the Bisons can do to make it like 1988 again? No. There's two reasons why. I mean, obviously, back then, it wasn't about the baseball either. It was almost a civic duty thing. You bought your season tickets, so you'd be in line for Major League Baseball, and we were trying to show Major League Baseball we could draw fans to lure a team. I think... 
AAA baseball has gotten worse over the years in terms of player movement. Anytime you're a good player now, you're worried he's going to be gone in two weeks. I mean, I know we even think in terms of media, let's do a feature on Bison Player X. He's having a great year. Well, we better do it in the next two or three days, lest he gets called up and he's gone. So it makes it very difficult. I know they get to some seasons where they use 60 to 65 players. In the late 80s and early 90s, that number was 40. You know, and a lot of players stayed the whole season. That like Orlando happen. Merced. He was like yeah. a star, kind of. And I knew Orlando yeah. Merced when I was a kid, and I wanted to go watch him. And Jeff Manto was another one. And Torrey Lavello, they stayed the whole year. Brian Giles and Jeremy Burnitz. That's really kind of gone away for whatever reason. And I think now the Bisons are selling the experience of being at a ball game, which works in most cities, but it's a problem in a city like Buffalo because we're used to watching the Sabres and the Bills. And we're used to knowing the players and really caring about the result. And minor league baseball, unfortunately, isn't always about the result. It isn't always about the players. It's about the experience. And that's fine if you're in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. That's fine if you're in Norfolk, Virginia, if you're in small towns, smaller cities. This is a major league town. And that's always been an issue people have that level of frustration with. And it's really nothing the Bisons can ever overcome. They just have to continue to try to sell the experience. The Mets partnership has been a disaster, mostly because the Mets have been a disaster. What do you think happens with the Mets, and when this agreement ends, do you see the Bisons and the Mets being a long-term partner, or do you see the Bisons looking elsewhere? Well, the agreement runs out after the 2012 season. It's hard to blame the Mets for 2011. A lot of injuries in the big leagues, a lot of injuries in Buffalo, um, you know, the Bisons had a great pitching rotation at the start of the year. Dylan G ends up in New York. Henry Mejia and Booth Bonser blow out their elbows in Buffalo. You know, you lose three. Pat Mish gets called up. You lose four fifths of your rotation. What are you going to do? What the Bisons have to watch is are the Mets a credible business partner? The Mets will get them players, but are the Mets a credible business partner? Right now, the answer to that is no. You do not want to be in business with the Wilpon family. They are too much in disarray. That can change in a year. Maybe their house gets better in order. Maybe they end up selling the minority partner, Einhorn. We'll see. The Bisons have a long time to make this decision. It doesn't have to be made until September of 2012. If I were making it today, I would move on. They have another year to see how things play out. Right now, I would certainly say, you know, if you want to use a draft analogy, the Mets are on the clock. The sportscasters are here with Mike Harrington of the Buffalo News. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at BN Harrington. How has Twitter and blogging kind of changed what you do, and do you enjoy them? Well, I certainly enjoy them. You know, we use the Inside Pitch blog and the Sabres Edge blog at buffalonews.com. I enjoy Twitter. I enjoy the interaction. You know, it's like anything else, Steve. There's pros and cons to it. You know, we saw some of the negatives to it on free agency day. You know, when everyone and their brother is reporting it, you know, Cody McCormick is signed. Well, most of the people, quote-unquote, reporting it were not reporters. They were retweeting it from a report saying it was true, and I believed it was true, and we heard it was true. The bottom line is it wasn't true until the team confirmed it was true. You know, and it was about 55 minutes after the first report of Cody McCormick the team confirmed he had signed. You know, so people are on me on Twitter saying, well, you guys are slow. This and No, I'm doing my due diligence, my reporting. We don't keep a scorecard who's first. We keep a scorecard over 
making sure we're right. Let me tell you, no one's going to remember if I'm first in something. Everybody's going to remember if I'm wrong. And the biggest negative about Twitter at times can be this rush to get it out there first and who's first. And you know, Ultimately, we believe that we are the media outlet in town that will give you the most analysis, will give you the most coverage, the broadest breadth of coverage, and we have the most access. There's no one outside the locker room in Calgary when the players are having a players-only meeting but me. That night I was there. That's the difference between all the blogs and Twitter out there. And I love them all, but there's a difference between a mainstream outlet like we are. And we're not interested in being first. We're interested in being right, and people forget that a lot. And let me tell you, if we were ever wrong, we would hear about it. So I don't want to be in the, involved in the Twitter rush. I want to be involved in the Twitter exchange of ideas and opinions and information, and that's a big difference. All right, again, the sportscasters are here with Mike Harrington from the Buffalo News. You can find his work on buffalonews.com. He mentioned the Sabres Edge blog as well as Inside Pitch. And you can follow him on Twitter. He is at BN Harrington. Just one or two more questions before I let you go about the Bills. What can the Bills do when this lockout ends, assuming it does end, to kind of be more relevant? Because if I think... The Bills have struggled for, with one thing over the last 10 years. It's relevance. They haven't had any except for maybe the brief period where they brought Terrell Owens in. What can they do to be more relevant? Win. I, I like the Al Davis theory. Just win, baby. You know, I mean, the Bills are still the number one force in town, especially they're winning. They're really, the Sabres have really closed the gap on them now, especially in the advent of social media. Um, there are people, we've gone an entire generation, there are 12-year-olds out there who have never seen the Bills in the playoffs. There are 17-year-olds out there don't remember, weren't even alive for the Super Bowl days. That's how long it's been, shockingly enough. Um, you can't be relevant if you go 10 years in the NFL out making the playoffs. I know they're trying. Marcel Darius is a great draft pick. You know, they, ha- they don't have a great quarterback. Ryan Fitzpatrick is serviceable. You know, if they don't make the playoffs here at some point soon, they're not going to be relevant. And let me tell you this, in the town, if the Bills continue to lounge around at 5-11 and 11, and the Sabres are pushing toward the Stanley Cup, the Bills really slide down the totem pole. You were happy with, you mentioned you were happy with the first-round pick. Did you think the Bills did a good job at the draft in general? Because that has been one thing that has held them back. But drafting three running backs, for example, in the first round since last time they made the playoffs, did they do a better job this year at the draft? You know, I, I don't pretend to be an expert on the Bills, and especially in NFL drafting. We have a lot of specialists at our place. But, the, you know, the, the few conversations I've had with them, they, they seem more positive about the direction it's going. There's certainly universal agreement that Chan Gailey is a better head coach than Dick Duron. Uh The jury's certainly out on Buddy Nix as a GM. You know, the feeling is that they're moving forward. I say they really had, they were down pretty low. They better be moving forward. But, uh, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, how much improvement can you say they've really done if they go 6-10 and 10 this year, assuming it's a full season? Um, until they can put a winning season out there and start pushing for the playoffs, and they're in a very tough division, you know, the Bills are going to continue to be a bottom feeder in the NFL, and it's really hard to see. After you live through the glory days of 1988 to 96 to see what it's come to now, it's really hard to believe. And I give credit for all those people who are out there every Sunday, 70,000 strong, and you know they really haven't been rewarded for their faith all these recent years. Mike Harrington, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you.
All right, the sportscaster is back with you for one last segment today here on episode number 29. Got to thank our guests, Mike Carrington of the Buffalo News. That one was for Richard Deitch. Hope he listens and enjoys it. His favorite writer at the Buffalo News is Mike Harrington. We talked a little bit about that with him. And also, we got to thank AJ Delirio, the editor in chief at Deadspin.com. Probably one of the biggest names we've ever had on the Sportscasters, and want to thank him for joining us. Next week is episode 30, and we have a couple of nice guests lined up. Jane Levy, who I mentioned in the book club update as the author of the book of the month, The Last Boy will be with us, and Jane is very, 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 very established as one of the best sports journalists of all time, so we're looking forward to talking to Jane, and also we're going to talk with Damon Hack of Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. Hopefully by the time he is on, the NFL lockout is over, and we can talk football with him instead of having to talk lockout. A couple things before we get to pick four, I just want to remind everyone to check us out on Facebook. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can find our blog. We have a pretty active blog these days. Uh, we've been doing a lot of live blogging. I did a blog the other night as I watched the NFL Network's Top 100 Players. And uh, Don and I both did blogs on the start of NHL Free Agency. Both good reads. I encourage you to check them out. The sportscasters.blogspot.com. Also, you can find us on Twitter. Don is at DonLikeSports. I am at Diversity23. And the show is Sports underscore casters don't forget to email us the sportscasters at gmail.com and if you need any of this information you can find it on our website sports-casters.com all right pick four last week one of the better weeks we've had in a while combined we went oh six and four uh, i went two and two personally having the tigers over the mets five to two the Yankees over the Mets 5-1. to one. That was the game of the week. My pitcher, James Shields, who had about a seven-game winning streak, failed for me and lost to the Reds 4-3. to three. And I said that the AL, now get this, Don, I said that the AL would win 60%. 60% yep. They won 50 57% of the games. And on Sunday, the great Mariano Rivera blew a save. If he with two outs save, he had two outs. Really, nobody was on. They got four straight base hits and then won the game in the tenth. Wow! If he would have got that last out, got the save, it would have been fifty nine point five percent or sixty percent, and I would have got Rounders, it. Rounders, yeah. So thanks for nothing, there, Rivera. Uh, Don was four and two. Oh, I should mention, as far as I go, I didn't get any bonus points. Um, I said that the Sabers would pick would sign Richards. The Rangers did. Don and I were just talking off air that we both should have just said the Rangers since obviously his free agency was a big sham and he was going there no matter what. Also, I thought that the Jets might sign Stamkos to a free agent sheet. They did not. They didn't do anything. And I guess a question real quick, Don. What what are the Jets doing? They know there's a floor, right? That's true. Did they sign anybody? I'm not sure and definitely no one of consequence. And they are way, way low on the salary cap. I was actually reading uh, the Puck Daddy grades today and i honestly don't even remember seeing them on the grade sheet so if they were there they didn't they didn't do much substantial they need to do something so i missed out on that i like that too when you said that it was a thing i hadn't thought of at all but it made a lot of sense and the idea that they didn't even bother it, i mean force tampa's hand a little bit or do anything on july 1st you're right, a brand right. new team you sold out your entire building just on the fact that there might be hockey there 
You know, and you're going to bring a team with the lowest salary cap, really? I mean, you can't you can't do anything? I guess they're hoping to sell a lot of uh, Evander Kane jerseys. Yeah, well, good luck with that. So I didn't end up getting any bonus points. Don, on the other hand, went 2-2 two and two in pick four. Uh, he picked the game of the week correctly, as I did. His pitcher, Jurgens, now has a win for both of us, uh, defeating Baltimore 4 to nothing. He lost going against the Yankees in the second game of that series, as the Mets only won the third. And his bold prediction of the Sabres making a trade hasn't happened yet, uh, but it could sometime. He did get two bonus points, which is good for Don. Uh, no offer sheet for Stankos was correct. And Erhoff being the most expensive Sabres free agent, I gave it to him. Right. Uh, you could make a case for Leno if you say it's a cap hit. Right. Uh, we didn't specify, so why not give it to him? That gives him we four and two, an overall record of get. 50 and 53. And I have an overall record of 50 and 51. Don, why don't you kick us off this week? All right, the game of this week. We're going to give the women a little love. Uh, U.S. versus Sweden at the World Cup. Or is Women's it? World Cup. World, Women's correct, World yep. Cup, right. Uh, Wednesday at 2.45. It'll be played on ESPN. And I'm going to go a little bit of a homer pick here and take the United States. Now, the United States have already clinched a spot in the quarterfinals. But they can win the group with a tie or a win here. And winning the group means that they don't have to play Brazil in the quarterfinals, which is probably preferable as Brazil has the best player in the world, who I don't know if you've seen any highlights, scored an absolutely sick goal the other day. And you know what's funny is I can't even recall her name, the Brazilian player, but she plays her club football for a team based out of Salem's. In Elma, New York. Really? Yeah. She gets paid $100,000 to play for the Western New York team in the Women's Professional League. They play their home games in Rochester just because I guess they can't find the proper venue. Is it the Rhinos? No, that was the the Rhinos is the former men's team. team. Right. I didn't know if they had a women's team. But yeah, so avoid Brazil, good. So I picked the USA to beat Sweden as well. My host choice this week, uh, despite what instinct would tell you at the beginning of the season, I'm going to take the Pirates, the surging Pirates, over the Cubs Saturday at 7.05 at home on a, on a roll. Now three or four games over 500 for the first time in, what, their history, I think? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's incredible because we spent this whole baseball season trying to pick against the Pirates for right. whatever reason. Right. And all they have done is win, win, and win against us, so... Wise choice. My host choice is I'm going to go with Justin Verlander. I know this isn't the pitcher thing, but I'm going with Justin Verlander as much as I'm <laughs> going with the Tigers. Right. Because he has gotten to a point in his career where his pitching is must-watch. If you have a chance to watch Justin Verlander pitch, do it. Because every time he goes onto the mound, it seems like he has a chance to throw a no-hitter. And this week he plays the Royals and Jeff Francis, who has an awful season so far. So I'm going to pick the Tigers over the Royals, Verlander over Francis. My pitcher of the week is a Texas Ranger, Ogando. I didn't write the game down like an idiot, but I think it's Wednesday. Uh, he is playing against Guthrie in the Orioles, and he's gonna. I'll take him. His eight and three average, or his eight and three record, and his two point eight six ERA to get the W. And I'll look up that day. All right, and uh, my pitcher, I'm going to go with Barry Zito, formerly of the Big Three from the Oakland Athletics. I've been reading a little bit. I've been refreshing my mind on Moneyball. I saw the trailer for the movie, and uh, I've been reading the book over again a little bit. And Barry Zito is a big topic in it. 
And he's just come off the DL a couple of uh, starts ago. He's 2-1 and one so far. And his Giants play the Padres at home on Thursday at 10-15. So I'm going to go with Barry Zito this week. That, that game, my game, by the way, is Wednesday at 8.05. Um, my bold prediction this week somewhat piggybacks on my one last week. We're going to go a little local again. And I'm going to say that one of uh, Marc-Andre Grignani, uh Weber, I can't think of his name for some reason, Mike, Mike or Sakara will not be a Buffalo Sabre by the next podcast. I just think there's a log jam there. They still need a center. Those guys are attractive, young prospects that would be good and part of any deal. Sakara's now going to arbitration maybe. Yep. So any of those guys would be attractive to another team and would be – the Sabres now have the depth of defense to get rid of one of them. So I could see that happening. My bold prediction is just that Derek Jeter will have 3,000 hits by the time he goes to the All-Star game. This is the last week before the All-Star game. We're already to Wednesday, so – or Tuesday, so he has when Tuesday night's game, Wednesday night's game, Thursday night's game, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday. He's got he's six games left to, six, to get right? six hits. Yeah. So he's going to have to get a multi. Uh, he's going to have to at least get a hit a game, uh, which maybe isn't the boldest of all time predictions. They but went with, for four last night, and with the pressure of trying to get three thousand hits, uh, it might be a little bit more difficult. Not my boldest of choices, but uh, Derek Jeter. I think he's going to get this done by the end of the All Star game. The women's soccer player I mentioned earlier, her, na- her name is Marta Vieira da Silva, and she generally just goes by Marta. And the club that she plays for is called the Western New York Flash, uh, which is a part of the American Professional Soccer League, which is called the Women's Professional Soccer, or WPS. She uh, gets paid $100,000 a year by that club or by Brazil? By that club. Wow. Yep, they paid her $100,000 to bring her from from Brazil. Brazil. Okay. Uh, Salem Stadium is in Rochester, New York. That's where they play. The capacity is 13,768. They average about 1,000. So, you know, it's one of those hidden gems in Western New York sports right now. When the Women's World Cup ends and Marta comes back to Western New York, yeah. she is literally out there, at, you know, over and over again, the best player at something in the world. Uh, you can probably get a ticket for 10 bucks, I would guess. Right. Uh, they started playing their home games at Orchard Park High School, which is interesting enough um, because they, are, they, they practice at the Salem Sports Park in Alma. But uh, they've moved to Rochester. And you know what's funny about it is, you know, they have Marta. They also have maybe the best American player in the world, um, Alex Morgan. Men's? Yeah, yeah. Women's, yeah. Alex Morgan, who's on the team oh, as okay, well. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so it's the best player in the wor- world, Marta, and the best American player in the world, Alex Morgan, who's a fox, do by they, the way. Do they just run the league there or what? That's a good question. You know, I don't know much about the women's soccer league. But I guess it's an eleven man, eleven person game. So yeah, but you got the two best players right, right. in the world. So, and I'm sure they're missing them right now as they're both at the World Cup. I just uh, Google imaged Alex Morgan, and I thumbs up. Yeah, she's a fox. Very pretty. All right, so that's it. Episode twenty nine, our last episode in the twenties. We will turn thirty next week. And we will do so with Jane Levy and Damon Hack. We will talk to you then. Donkey the hip. We're out. All right.